This is your spoiler warning for the new Magnificent Seven movie. We spoil everything. Hello and welcome back to episode three, The Magnificent Seven. I, I guess we're four early. I'm Randy Boyles. I'm Aaron Tymek. And we are here today to review the Magnificent Seven 2016 remake that just came out with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the original Magnificent Seven. We're going to talk about the original, original Seven Samurai. We're going to talk about the Seven Samurai anime adaptation, which features giant robots. And then we're going to talk about some of the other spin-offs that came off of this. It's generally going to be a Mag- Magnificent Seven theme episode for you guys so if you don't like westerns you don't like akira kurosawa you don't like any of those kind of things then this episode may not be for you but i think you should stick around because you're probably going to find out that a lot of the movies that you like have a lot of themes that came from these movies and i really think that this is a kind of a genre builder for you know westerns for a lot of the other movies that are out there that people really like, and these movies are the movies that your directors of the movies you like like. Yeah, no, this is the rundown. Everything you've ever watched has more than likely had an episode inspired by this story. Yeah, and so what we're going to start with this week is uh, we actually got our first sponsor, uh, and so we're going to give a little shout out to audible.com and audible.com is a online Amazon company that you can download ebooks through to be able to listen to while you're in the car, while you're driving, while you're on the train, um, you know, while you're running around your house. The reason that we decided to team up with Audible is because it's a product that I use every day. I ride the train into work from where I'm at, and the Wi-Fi coverage is not that great. The cell coverage is not that great. And so if you're going to spend an hour on the train, you may as well do something like read an ebook. So I've managed to get through things like Ready Player One, uh, the Legacy Fleet Trilogy, the first book of Game of Thrones again, and I've start, just started on the second, all through using audible.com. And so if you go online to audibletrial.com slash two nerds walk in, you can get signed up for Audible and you can get a free month and a free download. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash two Two nerds walk in. So uh, I think we should just hop right into Magnificent Seven. So the the newest one came out last week, and you went and saw it. So what was your initial impressions? I think it's about thirty minutes too short. And I thought that the thirty minutes that you wanted probably would have been too much for me. I think that it was good where it was. What did you want filled in? I wanted less subtle storytelling. And I'm fine with subtle storytelling. I'm fine with just cluing into backgrounds of some less important characters somewhat naturally as the story progresses. Mm -hmm. My issue is all of the characters' stories, except for Denzel Washington, are told passively through, like, offhand comments that unless you're looking for that, you're going to miss. Right. Other than that, I I, I think the movie's fine. I think it ended abruptly, which is a little, like, sour note for me. All in all, it's a good movie. I'll give it like a 6 out of 10, which is high on my scale. Um, Yeah, I think that for me, that there were... This movie does not give you anything new. It does not reinvent a genre. It does not 
introduce anything that is new or insane or you know something that you're going to go home and and talk about that you've never seen before but what i think it does is i think that it will be a good way for hollywood to look at westerns again because i mean really outside of things like uh open range or cold mountain or and and even cold mountains more civil war than than wild west you know we really haven't had anything in a long time that's been a good western western outside of django and hateful eight both of which were tarantino and tarantino as we both know was hugely inspired by seven samurai um so i think that it'll maybe push to get more new westerns out there and i think that what it did with the source material was was good i think that this was closer to seven samurai than the original magnificent seven was um but i also think that it lost some things in that transition too because at the end of the movie you really don't have the sense that you know it was the villagers when you have the sense that well Denzel Washington came in, kicked ass, got the guy who had hurt him and his family, and now he was moving on. And, I and think... the problem with that, so the reason we feel that way is they left their town almost uninhabitable at the end of this film. Yeah. they they It gets wrecked through various explosions. I imagine there's a fire or two floating around, and the chain gun, spoilers, at the end just pokes holes in every house ever all of the buildings might as well be pushed over. Right, right. And so they end up leaving these people in a bad situation. I mean, you know, they're they're tough and they'll rebuild their land, but, you know, a bunch of their people just died. They, The people who they brought into the town had essentially been slaves that were working out at that Bogue mine. There's just a whole lot of things that are going on that when they leave, they're really not in a better situation. They're in a worse situation. Yeah, no, it it's good. The, the plot's fine. They are left real bad. Like, a lot of their men are dead. You only see a handful at the end of the film. And they're which all older I guys. I think the less. Yeah, go on. I said, and I think they're all older guys. It's like the priest and, like, the old grandpa, the one guy who's been protecting his son the whole movie. Like, that's it. And so in the final scene, I think where it really does a disservice to itself is we don't get that scene of the whole village kind of doing something. Like, they're all walking out post-trauma of just murdering a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Which is fine. That's a powerful scene as well. But we don't get that any success was made because we only see like ten people at the end of the film. Yeah. Well, I think that you see a few more than that. Um, but yeah, no, it, you just kind of it leave it does leave on a very sour note. But you know, that's kind of a thing with westerns too. I mean, you got like think about Shane. Like Shane's riding away, possibly dead, possibly bleeding to death on a horse. I mean, it's kind of a thing in westerns where it doesn't always turn out roses, which is something I actually like about westerns, but the if the whole point of this was to be able to try and help out and take care of this village, they really kind of failed. Yeah, Bogue is gone, but the next guy who comes along, they're just going to be like, ah, yeah, let's just do whatever he wants. Yeah, no, they're in a real bad position for the next person to just walk in to take over, because at this point, anybody with resources could own this. The only person in this town 
who's probably better off is the uh, coffin maker. The, yeah, the Undertaker guy. Yeah, the Undertaker is just set for life. If <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that he's going to be building everything up, and he's going to—he's probably got to build so many caskets right now. They're just probably going to end up tearing down the rest of that church to be able to do it. Oh yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the casting for this movie and, and the cast of the movie. Um, so as we said, you've got Denzel Washington who's playing Sam Chisholm. He's the main guy. He is a duty sworn officer of the court as he likes to mention quite a few times um, and he's the one that the damsel in distress goes to for help asking him if he can do something about this big bad villain Bogue who's played by Peter Skarsgård who did a significantly better job in this movie than he did in Green Lantern when he was Hector Hammond but that was the Green Lantern movie and as a whole was just terrible so we'll move past that you've got Chris Pratt in there and Chris Pratt is going to be playing as Faraday, and he is a gambler. You have Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke in there as Goodnight Robichaux, who was a old Confederate sniper who has since changed his ways, and he's got some backstory with uh, Sam. You've got my favorite character, Vincent D'Onofrio, as Jack Horn, who is a God-fearing mountain man. Uh, you've got... Young Hun Lee as Billy Rocks, who is a, the, the knife wielder. Uh, all of these movies have a, a swordsman, and that's Billy Rocks in this movie. You've got the guy who clearly had the most story out of everybody, Manuel Garcia Rolfo as Vasquez, the Mexican outlaw who likes guns. That's that's literally everything you know about him. And you've got Martin Sensemeyer as Red Harvest, who is an exiled Comanche warrior who ends up joining them because Denzel Washington eats a heart. <laughs> oh, it's implied that they all do. Uh, I don't think that's implied. I think that just the two of them did it. No, no, because when he walks back, he says something about, uh, time for breakfast, I've had mine. I felt that it was implicating that like they all had to do it for him to join. No, he said make him some breakfast. I've already had mine. All right, maybe I just misheard the line. Yeah, I think you did. I think you're crazy. Yeah. All right, so let's break these characters down. All right, let's start. Let's start at the top. Let's start with Denzel. Yep, yep. So Denzel, Sam Chisholm. Um, he's fine. He's a good character. You start off thinking he's doing this for the good of doing it, kind of. Once he gets annoyed and or not annoyed, but once the the town is insistent and he kind of. It, it, you feel that once we understand that this town is in dire straits and they're convinced this is all they have and they offer everything, mm -hmm. that that's why he's helping them initially. Because there isn't an option for these people. So you think he's doing it for the good of everything. Yep. And I, I feel we don't have to say this at this point, but spoiler alert, we're going to talk about things in this movie. He's not. He's 100% self-motivated to do this. It just so happens that doing a good thing also happens. Right. Because the main villain, whose name is eluding me, Bogue. is... P uh, oh, no, it's Bogue. Bogue is the main villain. So we later learn that Denzel's wife and mother... Or no, sisters and mother were all beaten, raped, and murdered. And they attempted to hang him. And he has the best reveal in the whole movie when he shows his neck scars. Yeah, he pulls that scarf back and you see it. Yep. 
he's everything you expect out of the main character in a western in this film. It's Denzel, so he acts the crap out of every scene he's in. Yep. The one thing about his character I have to say bothered me, his 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 side chops. They bothered me. They went too far forward on his face. Oh, you never go full side chops. Uh, it really, that was the only thing, like every time they showed him, and I saw his side chops, and I saw that his side chops were like an inch away from his mustache, but didn't connect, it just, it bothered me, and I know that it's such a small thing to bother me, but man, those side chops. I mean, that's fair, I had other little things that were bothering me a little more than that, I was like, but I think he was oh, fine oh, throughout. And what was with him holstering his gun backwards? Did you know that? They do both of them or just the one? They um, Doing one is common. Okay, see, and I, I may not be enough of a Wild West nut to know that, but I just know that when he would spin his gun around and put it away, that thing was backwards. Because, uh, what is it, Chris Pratt also did that? He had one that was in the way you would think it would go? Right. And the one on his front is facing like the wrong way if you will that's a little like further up on his hip yeah all but right it's a somewhat common practice in western stuff all right maybe maybe i don't know it just it was weird to me so we'll go to chris pratt now he's next he's the next one that gets recruited um he is the gambler uh archetype he's the guy who when he gets involved he's doing it because there's a reason for him to and in this case the reason is denzel ends up buying his horse and so if he wants the horse he needs to go along with them um and you know he's a gambler he kind of takes a chance the the problem with chris pratt's character is that chris pratt was playing chris pratt some of the time and was playing faraday the character other times when he was doing faraday it was really good i actually liked him as kind of a heartless gambler type bastard and it like it was a really refreshing thing to see from him after seeing you know andy and his character in jurassic world and his character in um oh what was that movie guardians of the galaxy guardians of the just galaxy so, just so we're clear on guardians of the galaxy that's just an alternate timeline where andy dwyer was abducted as a child yes i i would agree with that because it's the same character and that's who chris pratt seems to play and he does it really well but yeah, i love the character but in this one this particular circumstance i really liked evil heartless making jokes about people blowing people's ears off style chris pratt over goofy lovable chris pratt Oh yeah, like I said, he was good. He, uh, he's probably the number one cause for break and immersion. Like you, that's when you realize, oh yeah, I'm sitting through a movie. Even like you know, so you know you're sitting through a movie, but a good movie kind of makes you forget about how long a movie is. Right. And he's the main break of it. If we were to list the Magnificent Seven, one through seven, based on performance, he's probably a six or a seven. Sadly. Right. I think that he has one of my favorite lines in the movie, and in, in a place where i think you and i disagree later with the gatling gun scene um the, the one-eyed jacks line just kills me just absolutely kills me like it's fine so i appreciate the humor in this film my issue with that scene is he apparently becomes bulletproof for like five minutes and just takes like three different chambers worth of rounds from like all the pistols that were there and then finally he falls down, and they light his last cigar for him, and they do the tropey villain thing where, no, don't kill him, let him have his last smoke. And then he uses it to light a stick of dynamite, and 
Like, it, it just drug on forever. It feels like the longest scene in the movie. But that's kind of, like, what the point of this was supposed to be. I mean, it's supposed to have all these tropes, because this is where these tropes came from. You can't be mad at the origin of the trope. I, I can and will be, sir. All right, uh, so next down on our list, the next person that they end up uh, recruiting in is going to be Goodnight Show, played by Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington on screen together again, first time in 15 years because they did Training Day together, also with Antoine Fuqua, who directed this movie. He is a Confederate sniper. He's got some history with Denzel. He's the one who has the most backstory building actually out of everybody who's in this they kind of show that he's had some growth since being a confederate sniper because now he's rolling around with billy rocks who's an asian he's friends with sam chisholm who's you know black and so they've got this kind of build for him and then later on he snaps and he runs off and then he comes back untriumphantly but the real big thing about his character is the the kind of the friction that he seems to cause within the group with Chris Pratt and with everybody else during the the first big shootout when he's not really doing much and then the second shootout when he comes back um i think they did a lot with his character and well i, I mean good night robo show is just a fun name to say and ethan hawk i think did pretty well with it oh he did really well so ethan hawk yeah like i said he was a sniper he said i think he was he was either 27 or 19 kills. I don't remember. 27. Both, I both. Okay. Yeah, it was 27. He was dubbed the Angel of Death in the Civil when he was participating in the Civil War. And the inspiration for this character, the one that they wanted in this film, is Christopher Walken's character from Deer Hunter. Oh, okay. Was So he was just a Civil War veteran instead. So he's just a broken, shattered person. So he doesn't even... In the first big gunfight, he really just kind of breaks down throughout the fight and that's that nothing continues he's con yeah he breaks down he doesn't participate he's kind of freaking out about the fact that oh we're killing people again this isn't good you know like a war veteran would right and a, a traumatized war veteran not blanket statements um and it's really good he has the most story in the background by far we know, uh, they even tell us where him and Denzel meet earlier in the, like, where they've met in their past. Right. They explain why, and it's a good reason then why he has Billy with him. It's, he, he's probably the best character in the film. He is, the, the weird thing here for me is, for the comparison to the original Seven Samurai, is do you remember the kid who isn't really a samurai? Right. This is him. This is supposed to be that character. He's useless throughout the whole thing, comes back, and then he's still useless, but helps. He starts. He takes a couple shots, and because he's Goodnight Show, he probably hits. See, and I thought of him more as the Lancer, because I thought that the Teddy kid, the one who went with the jennifer lawrence knockoff chick that they used to go recruit them i looked at him as that character especially the way he was with spoiler alert vincent d'onofrio when he died how he was there and he was like kind of in it but not really i looked at him more as that kid than robichaud i looked at robichaud as the lancer um, like, I would agree with you if we didn't know that that character had to be someone, and we know that the dude from the town isn't one of the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, He's not true. one of the seven. That's true. And, like, Goodnight Robichaud is the one who 
like, so the comparison here to the original Seven Samurai character, he claims to have a background. They all know his name because he has his family tree and everything. Yeah. And then he just doesn't deliver. And that's literally what happens with Goodnight Robichaux is he has this name to the point where Chris Pratt calls him out is see if he's even the real Goodnight Robichaux when they're training the town. That's true. All right, so let's get to Vincent D'Onofrio next with Jack Horn. Uh, uh, hold on, Billy. Oh no, no, Billy doesn't oh, come next. Okay. Billy, you're Billy looking at the list. I'm I got you. The, we're gonna we're gonna hit the list, so I make sure we get everybody. Okay. Um, so we got Jack Horn with Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, he is a tracker and mountain man. They're kind of riding along. Uh, to when they get introduced to this character, there's these two guys who are trying to sell them Jack Horn's gun. Jack Horn's built been built up as this big Sioux hunter. He got all these scalps. You know, he can do all these things. So they're looking for him. These guys claim that they killed him by dropping a rock on his head, and all of a sudden he comes running up with blood all over the side of his face, and he kills both of them. <laughs> And he's oh, it's so good. And it's it's Vincent D'Onofrio, so he's this big, imposing dude. I mean, he's he's kingpin. He's from Full Metal Jacket, so you know he's good at these over the top characters. But then he speaks, and the voice that he uses is this high pitched, low, slow witted voice that is just amazing and like i almost started <laughs> laughing when i heard it because i was just like oh vincent d'onofrio you've done it again like it's yeah and it's so soft it, it's a quiet helium voice almost right and at first i was like wait did he just say words is that the voice we're using through this whole film <laughs> and it gets better than the it was in the initial scene yeah the further along he goes and the more comfortable he gets with the group the the more you can understand him but like you know when you heard Bane's voice for the first time? like oh, Don't compare it to that. I'll never look at this character the same. No, 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 no. And, and like how bad that that initial, like, you're listening to it and you're like, oh man, this is just not right. I heard Jack Horn's voice for the first time and I was like, I don't think I can see you talking as anything else but this. Good job, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, okay, so I think he's the second most compelling character story-wise. Because we get the second most story out of this character. Right. Or third, not counting Denzel. Of of the backup six, I guess we could call them. <laughs> the ridiculous six. Yes. He's got the second most story. His story's the hardest one to actually get, though. Because you have to really pay attention to everything he says. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. it's not told in like an order, which is fine if they told us more. Like I'm a little disappointed I, we couldn't get more. What we have to infer from his story is at one point... He's just a frontiersman. He's just taking care of his family. They hunt. They probably grow some stuff. And they're living happily on their farmstead. And then we, I feel that it's implied that the Sioux come in and murder his whole family. He states that his family just died one day. He doesn't say how ever. Mm -hmm. He just states that one day they're gone. And then at the beginning, we know that he is known for being a brutal, brutal scalper. Even after the government stopped buying Sue scalps, he was still doing it. And he had like 300 of them that the, he had turned in or something like that, which was insane for the time. Right, like he had a huge number. So it's implied that Sue killed his family, he goes nuts and starts murdering people. And throughout the film, he's still this God-fearing man, and it's really nice, and he's kind of coming to terms with everything that he's done and moving on with his life by helping these people. And he says it himself that it's therapeutic to be doing God's good, work. even if it's this way 
Yeah, he he think he calls it God's work at one point. Says that he'd be happy to die beside these men doing God's work, even with the Indian there. Yep. <laughs> Which when he they find out that he can speak <laughs> English is freaking hilarious. It's so good. All right. Uh, next would be Byung Hun Lee's Billy Rocks. So every single one of these movies, including the original Magnificent Seven, has a swordsman, um, and in this one, it's Billy Rocks. And what is really amusing is you've always got that trope out there: who brings a knife to a gunfight? And the first time you see Billy Rocks's character, he brings a hairpin to a gunfight and still manages to win. <laughs> Yeah, no, pistols at noon, and he just drops all of his guns and everything, and they're they're dueling for money initially, trying to shoot the cut behind everyone, because, I mean, why not? It seems like a way to make money. And yeah, he just hairpins this dude dead. Bye. Yeah, and so you you get set off right away about how this character is going to be. He doesn't talk a whole lot. Later on, he gets pretty drunk. But, you know, he's he's the stoic character, and that's what the swordsman generally is in these. He's very stoic, he's very good at what he does, and he's different than everybody else um there's a when they're training the villagers later on he kind of tries to show them how to use knives and everybody's like what are you gonna do with a knife that's all fancy and then he just goes crazy and everybody turns around and just leaves like they just walk away they're like nope we can't do that well uh he's the like we said earlier he's the right hand man of robichaud yep and he's kind of seen robichaud through all of his worst times i feel we kind of get the feeling of like he under like he doesn't expect Robichaud to take place in this violence, and that's kind of why I really think he does double the work in both gunfights for him, just because he ends up taking up the sniper spot. He's still on the ground taking off and you know picking off individuals in that initial gunfight. He has that best kill in the movie when he stabs the guy into the post behind him, mm-hmm. runs in, and I didn't realize at first that that guy was punctured onto the pole behind him. And then when he comes back and pulls the sword out and the guy falls, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Also, talking about that gunfight, we have to go back to Vincent D'Onofrio, where he tackles a horse. He does. He just jumps and, like, sidearm lariats a horse to the ground to get a dude. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so next we've got Vasquez. So Vasquez's entire story, he's a Mexican bandit who is apparently pretty decent with a lasso because he gets the, uh, Jennifer Lawrence chick on the first try. And then he ends up making a deal with Sam Chisholm that'll help him. But he's, yep, he's Mexican. He likes guns and, uh, yeah, that's it. That's all you get. To, to really employ how little that his, this character has a story to like to him at all go to the wikipedia page and look up the character under the cast line so manuel the guy who plays vasquez normally you'd feel like when an actor explains a character they go way deeper than what's actually in the film because they kind of grow that character right manuel as described vasquez as described by manuel is a someone who loves gunfighting done move on red harvest Yep, and and even if you go down and you look at, like, the whole casting, you know, you look at Denzel, he's got, uh, like, a huge paragraph. Everybody else has, like, a paragraph. Then you get down to Vasquez and, and Red Harvest, to be honest, but he has a little bit more. But you get down to Vasquez, and it just says, Bandit, robber, and criminal who's been on the run for several months. He doesn't have anything to lose because he has no family. He describes his own character as someone who loves gunfighting. 
that that's it. <laughs> There's nothing else. Nope, oh, that's all we need to know about him. He's a guy. He likes to shoot stuff. Uh, he's Mexican because they needed a Mexican. He gets into an argument with somebody over the term Texican, which to me is hilarious. Well, that is just a reference to the original Magnificent Seven. Yep. I mean, that that's that character. We've already talked about him longer than he got talked about in the film. Yep. Um, and then moving on, we're going to hit uh, Red Harvest, who is the exiled Comanche warrior who joins the group. And there's... To me, his joining was the weirdest because they are going to go to the town now. They've got their six people and they're all happy. They're riding along. Well, they have only a five at the at this point. They're camping out. They wake up in the morning and Jack Horn comes in because he hadn't joined them previously and he just tells them somebody's tracking them. And then all of a sudden, this Comanche rides out. Yep. And then we're sitting there and we're we're watching it and then it turns out that Sam Chisholm can speak some Comanche. They eat a heart together, and now they're partners. And they're partners because he was told that he has to lead a different life. So it really is kind of a weird thing that it's just like out of nowhere this other guy decides to join. But he does have some really badass scenes later on, like sniping people from roofs and whatnot. Yeah, he has really good scenes. Um, Of note, his exiled didn't seem dishonorable in any way, shape, or form. I don't know why that would occur. If anyone out there happens to be a Comanche Indian person, send us a note. Let me know why. But he was exiled, but it didn't seem to be negatively. He wasn't, like, disgracefully exiled. Right. And it seems that it just, you know, he was supposed to walk a different path. His path ended up coming here, and they ended up working together. And then later on, he calls the other Comanche who's doing the same thing, but for the bad guys, disgraceful. So I don't know what's up with that. Maybe that guy... Yeah, and he seemed real mad about that old guy. He did. He did. So, yeah, that's kind of a rundown on the the cast. The story was that... um, that they're just trying to save this village from this guy, Bogue, who wants the land to be able to mine. We'll go a little bit more into that in just a couple of seconds. So, Aaron, have you heard of Dungeons & Dragons? I might have. Well, I heard that coming soon from the Two Nerds podcast is going to be a Two Nerds walk into a dungeon campaign that's going to be a weekly one-hour show. <sighs> Exciting, exciting. So keep an eye out for that. The first show should be coming out the third week of October. So now let's get back to the story. So uh, what did you think of the story overall? I mean, yes, it's a story we've heard over and over again. Like we were talking about earlier, pretty much everything that you've seen, every TV show you've seen, especially every Western that you've seen, have all been kind of influenced by Seven Samurai and and Magnificent Seven. So, I mean, did this set itself apart? Was it different enough from the originals to give you something new? I mean, what did you think of this story? First off, I really got excited when I thought you were about to start singing Beauty and the Beast. Secondly, (laughs) (laughs) it's a tale as old as time. It's a fine story. It's all right. Like I said, it... Honestly, with how little exposition there is in this story, I don't even know if it gets to be a whole story. Now, if you want to go watch a sweet gunfight, you can do that here, and it's real good. If you want to go, if you're looking for that deep story film, which first off, you're not going to westerns for. Let's cover <laughs> that. Hey man, I don't know if it's there. 
Good, bad, and the ugly. All right. That's all I got to say. I'll give you. There's some really good. So Now, on top of that, I will state that this, like I said earlier, this got a 6 out of 10, which is a really high rating on mine. I'm really harsh on movies usually. I think this might be one of my favorite westerns, short of the name is escaping me right now. Uh, Willy Wonka. Gee, Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles? Blazing Saddles can't... Is, is it you really count that as a western? I think it's my favorite western. All right. That's like saying that Men in Tights is your favorite, your, you know, like, England classic. No, no. My favorite England classic is the Robin Hood with the Fox. Oh, all right. The Disney one? Yep. All right. But, oh, yeah, it's a fine movie. It uh, it does everything well. The story's there if you want to look for it. And I know there's people out there that really like when they have to pay attention to everything. And it's nice. It forces you to pay attention to it. Right. Like I said, though, I think 30 more minutes, we get better story on just about everyone. And like we were saying, the best thing, off like we were saying off podcast, my favorite thing, though, is when they do their big reveals, they don't dick around with uh, montages. They don't give us a bunch of backflash stuff. Everything stays in the moment, at least. Right, and that helps you... That does help you stay with the movie and, and think about it as, you know, you're experiencing this versus you're watching a movie, because I don't know what it is about flashbacks, but unless they're done right, they're very disjointing for me. I can't think of a whole lot of movies that use flashbacks in a way that don't bring you out of the moment because I mean now you are somewhere completely different and this just feels so good with the way that they did it and I mean some of the cinematography that they used like when Bogue's army is riding up on the village at the end those shots that they do are amazing and it just really just gives you this immense wild west there's not a whole lot out here and when an army like this rolls the ground rumbles yeah, and a lot of the place to that is, so because it's a Western, they're not using a lot of, they don't use any CGI special effects or anything like that. It's all real, which I prefer. It's all actual special effects. It's, everything's there. Yep. You could have went out and touched everything you see on that screen, and that helps a lot. It adds to the realism. Um, honestly, the one thing I wish I would have seen is I wish they would have done it on 90 millimeter film or like 45 millimeter film and did an actual film release. Mm-hmm. Because I love the grainy, not the graininess, like they still come out looking nice, but they have like, they they have a look to them. They have a finish to them. And I think that would have done this movie a lot of justice. If it looked, if the same like shot filter, even though it wasn't necessarily a filter that they used on Hateful Eight was used on this film, it would have been great. Well, it's because Hateful Eight was done on 45mm, I think. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, they had a whole 45mm release, and I think that would have made this movie better for me because i appreciate that in my westerns because that's how i view westerns in my brain right but yeah no it's it, it's a fine film it's really good the issue is i just wanted a little more story okay but i mean you are going into a western so it's hard to imagine story coming out of a western oh yeah no that's my complaint about most westerns yeah um so let's compare this now to the original magnificent seven so the original magnificent seven had yule brenner had steve mcqueen um oh, who else was in there uh, charles bronson was in there the bad guy in that one instead of being bogue in the new one where he was a miner who wanted to take things this was a mexican bandit who was coming in and raiding a town for their supplies 
And so that would, in that way, this was more like, or the original Magnificent Seven was more like Seven Samurai because, you know, they're getting raided, they're getting their resources taken away instead of being forced off of their land, which is what they're doing in the new one. And so how did you compare these two films? So I said I'm going to start off with I don't much care for westerns. I think they're fine. Uh, I, the, the original one might be honestly a little better because it's easier to stay in the immersion. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that that's really what it comes down to. I don't know that I like... So, like, cast-wise, I don't know that Ewell Brenner is necessarily better than Denzel Washington was. Even though they're different characters. Ewell Brenner is just a weird dude in general, though. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, like, like Steve McQueen, probably better than Chris Pratt. Like, if we were to do it character breakdown-wise... I think I like the new one more. Like, one versus the other, it probably is like four to three. Right. Well, and and the one thing for me is I will say I think that the better... I want to sit down and watch a Western with cool shootouts movie. I think that the new one is better. I think that if I want to look at it from a which one leaves me feeling more satisfied when I'm done watching it, I think that the original is better at that because I think the original really brings out that whole fact that, you know, they got run off from the town. They had to come back to the town. Even when they're done, you know, when they're riding away, the, in the new one, they're done. They're, they're supposed to have helped the village, but, you know, we like we said, it's in tatters. The old one, as they're riding away, the ones that survive, they say, you know, the old man is right. Only the farmers won. We lost. We'll always lose. Because that's their point, is... It wasn't really their fight to begin with. They got involved. Anything that happened from that point, they were really just losing. They're not really gaining anything out of this. They're not getting paid huge amounts of money. And they're losing these guys who end up becoming their friends, even though they don't necessarily start off that way. And I think you get a lot more of that out of the original than you do out of the new one. Right, so if you're looking for the better Western adaptation of the original Seven Samurai... You're watching the original Magnificent Seven because it has it has the Seven Samurai ending, the most powerful part of that film. Mm-hmm. It has the relationships built among these somewhat tumultuous at times. The Seven Sat, like the Seven Gunmen in this film, aren't always on eye level, but they're always at the same goal. They don't win in the end. It's so important to remember that. That like, so when I watch, that's my biggest gripe with the new Magnificent Seven is one, the ending is abrupt, and two, the gunman won. That's not how the Seven Samurai film is supposed to end. And I understand the argument is, oh, well, it's just an inspiration. It's just based on. I don't know that you can base something on the most and then, like, leave out the most important part of the original story. Then it's just another Western that happens to have seven dudes. Right. It's a good Western that happens to have seven dudes. Just not the seven samurai western and then like so yeah if you want the better adaptation of the seven samurai you go to the original 1960 uh, magnificent seven now if you want the better gunfights naturally the new one has better ones but that's only because we have 50 more years worth of choreography and we have billy yeah and billy was really just insane billy and the comanche are the two best parts of that film fight wise uh Vincent D'Onofrio has some really good scenes, but, like, so those three people, those are the people we're watching the fight for, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think that Sam, Sam's fights are really good, but you know what's going to happen with the Sam fights. Like, you know that Denzel Washington is just going to 
kill everybody and be able to dodge the bullets and like does he even get shot outside of no I don't even think he gets shot no he doesn't even get like winged he's just he he will run like the only person that got I guess I all right so four of them got shot real bad yeah but the only person that takes any real wounds before dying is uh Chris Pratt yeah I think so well did the Mexican get hit and that dude bleeds for like four hours yeah, and then manages to pull off Superman-type stuff, but eh, whatever. But yeah, and so going back to the original now, I mean, and then the the thing about the original for me is, you know, I wasn't I wasn't even a gleam in my mother's eye when that movie came out because I I think that movie came out before my mother was even born. But with that movie, there was so much hype and buildup because it was adapting the original work and they brought in these people to make it and they made the changes to turn it into a Western, but there was so much going on behind the scenes on that movie that we know about now that you probably knew about back then. Somebody who's older, who's listening to this can probably tell me, but like, you know, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen didn't get along at all. And like Yul Brenner refused to stay where the rest of the actors were staying. He needed his own hotel McQueen was mad that he only had seven lines of dialogue in the original script, so he kept doing things to upstage Brenner, like when he's uh, flipping the coin during Brenner's speech, like he wasn't supposed to be doing that, but he was trying to draw attention to himself. And like, Brenner would build up little mounds of dirt so that he could stand on top of them to seem like he was taller, and then McQueen would like knock the mound of dirt down in between retakes so that his height would look different throughout the movie. So like, when you have that kind of stuff, but you're doing those kind of childish, dickish things with such a amazing work, I, it just it baffles my mind that you would let those petty things interfere with doing something like that. Well, you got to remember, this is also a time, though, when Hollywood was still... It's still kind of the Wild West back then. Movies were being made in months, like two or three months, the whole production. Yeah. Everything was done. You had to do what you could. If you were a big name, if you were a Brenner, Steve McQueen, or a Charles Bronson, which are the three biggest names in this movie, I believe. Maybe I'm wrong, but those are the ones that I know off the top of my head. You were lucky. You were super gifted, almost more so than today. Mm-hmm. And you could be a snotty little three-year-old about things. And when you feuded with someone like McQueen and Brenner did, it makes greatness. It makes, you know, like it's, it was the Wild West. You did what you did, or you did what you could, and you had to take every chance you could to make it big. There wasn't inherently a sense of professionalism as much as there was entitlement. Right. All right, and so, I mean, not really much else to talk about with the differences between the two movies, um, except that, the 60s version was definitely a lot more racist than the new version is. Um, well, I mean, in the new per- in the new one, I don't... All, all the minorities survive. All the minorities survive. Well, and, I mean, they don't even really address the whole race thing at all. No, they don't. Well, they So, like, there is a little bit of tension, like you said, it was a flashback to the 60s between Faraday and Vasquez, I think it is. Yeah. There's a little bit of tension initially between Jack Horn and uh the Comanche but Red I mean, Havis. but I mean yeah, I was yeah, not Red as much Comanche. as you would think that there would be especially at that time so let's go to the granddaddy seven samurai because oh. 
Seven Samurai is the granddaddy. It stars the most preeminent Japanese actor, action actor of all time, Toshiro Mifune. If you've ever watched any anime ever, and you see that there's somebody who looks the same in every anime that you're watching, one of the, the more handsome men, it's because the anime drawer made that guy look like Toshiro Mifune. Every anime has a character who looks like this dude because he is that huge for them. And, you know, he's the one who initially claims to be a samurai and falsifies this tree that we were talking about earlier with... He, he's he's the one you're supposed to be able to identify with because he identifies with the villagers. He wants to be a samurai, but he's just really a peasant, and he ends up kind of being the bridge between the people who are watching and these characters who are these huge, larger-than-life samurai-type characters. Yeah, so this is... This, so I think we both agree this is... We didn't neither one of so we neither one of us picked it as our favorite movie because I don't think it's something we can just sit down and watch. It is a three and a half hour movie. Yep. So everyone's aware of this. That being said, I think it's the perfect movie. I agree. I agree, and I I have seen so many times over and over again that all of these great directors that I really like all say that this is the best movie that they've ever seen. I mean, Quentin Tarantino says that it's the best movie. Uh, Zack Snyder says that he was influenced by it when he's doing the new Justice League film that's coming out. John Sturgis went over, got a copy of this film, brought it back, and adapted it into The Magnificent Seven to mirror Seven Samurai because even he saw how big it was and he saw how powerful it was it's just one of those movies i mean it's won pretty much every award that that movie could possibly have won and it's it's one of those just seminal and defining movies that just launched absolutely everything yep um so directed by uh kira kurosawa who so whenever you look at every now and then different companies will release the list of the top 100 directors in the world it's a pretty somewhat regular list it comes out Maybe every other year. Yeah, something like that. And every now and then, the top of the list will change around. He is regularly, and I think the lowest he's ever, I've seen him on any of the lists that I look and acknowledge, is 11. Mm-hmm. Which is saying something with, I mean, at this point, with of all of the movies made, of all of, and in their international lists, he's usually like number seven, number eight. He's probably the best director out of Japan ever. Probably and the most notorious, or not notorious. That's the wrong word, but like the most famous by far, the most recognized. Yeah, and you got to figure that this was for a movie that came out in 1954. So we're nine years after World War II when he decides to make this movie and release it. It's a 207 minute long movie, which is incredibly long by today's standards. But back then, that was a monster, and it. It revolutionized what it meant to make a movie like this because, like like we said, everything since since this came out has been affected by this. So you've got samurai that are hired to protect a village because they they don't even hire them with money. They hire them with rice because they, they need to find hungry samurai because they don't have money to be able to hire them. They go... They, they come back, they're helping them against these bandits. These bandits 
are essentially coming in and, and taking all of the rice and, and bullying these guys up. So that's why they go and they get these six samurai to be able to help them out. They find a, a seventh one who's not actually a samurai, but later on, like like I said, he, he proves himself. And then yeah. these, these bandits have firearms, which is unique and you know nobody really has firearms, and so they're having to learn how to defend against that. And then, like we said, at the end, you have the the three samurai standing at the funeral mounds of their four dead comrades, lo- looking at how they've had this pyrrhic victory that, you know, even though they won, even though they beat the bandits, they, they killed the bandit chief, they still lost because the farmers got something out of this, but they really didn't. And the way that they were doing that and the way that they were looking at that at the time was it was showing how... The common people, you know, could use these people to be able to fight against somebody who's stronger than them and that it's really showing that the common people are the ones who have this power, have this victory, because, I mean, really, Japan needed that at this time because, you know, they just come out of World War II. And so it was a hugely cultural thing, but even though it was a hugely cultural thing, it resonates with so many people because, you know, you're in a world where you feel like you're getting oppressed and and sometimes you can only reach out to other people to be able to help you and sometimes you're the person who they reach out to to help but in the end if you're helping somebody their their victory is for them it's not for you and these samurai recognize that and no, even knowing that they went forward and tried to do this and tried to help out and it's just such a good movie another tribute to this movie is Everything going on is very serious subject matter. It's all... I mean, we're, we're talking about the life or death of a village, which it's a movie, so we kind of disassociate with that because it, it's a whole village. We know who's going to win. They're the title of the film, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, with all of the, everything that's serious going on, it has a good sense of humor inside of it, which I think is important if we're making a three-and-a-half-hour movie. It There are times that, although the humor might be lost on us, it'll be lost on a lot of American audiences... It's it's there. It's something that lightens the mood. We have we have rapid mood swings. So in this film, the bandits don't attack once. Mm-hmm. They attack like three separate days, and every day is sort of is effectively its own act. To all right, we're up. Oh, that went bad. We're down again emotionally. Oh, we're back up. Okay, and then we go back down, and then we win in the last one, even though everything still kind of looked against us. And that's when we see the gun. It's very it's it it swings. It's a three and a half. It it's it immerses you though. It does, and it it and when you're watching it, you really do get enveloped in it, and you really feel like the the stakes that are happening in this movie will affect you. Which in a lot of things, a lot of movies, you don't really feel. You know, when something is happening on screen, like like Aaron said, you can dissociate from it. But with this one, it's really hard to do that. You really do get wrapped in. And I think part of it is the way that a lot of the things that were done in it were new when it, when it was done. You know, like the use of telephoto lenses, which was really rare. But he decided that he wanted to use them to be able to do this because he, there was no guarantee that he could get action the same way twice. So when you're seeing, you know, a faraway shot on an action scene and then a close-up on the action scene you're really seeing the same scene shot on two different lenses, so you don't have that disjointed, 
wait a minute, that guy was falling to the left last time, and now there's not even anybody there, you know? And that's in a 1954 movie, and you still have issues like that occurring nowadays, like in the freaking Pirates of the Caribbean movie, where the dude wearing the cowboy hat appears in the background on the boat scene because the the staffer just walked onto the scene. That wouldn't have happened in this movie. Right. There's nothing that... I, I have nothing bad to say about this film. Some people are going to take it's a three-and-a-half-hour movie as something bad to say about it, and it's, it's not. It's, it's the most watchable three-hour movie, I think, period. And a lot of it has to do because it's not about walking. Yeah, calling you out. What about Boat Jack? Um, no, that movie's very unwatchable unless you're in the theater and already seen it and you're going to ruin it for someone else. Oh, all right, very good. Um, all right, so a couple of other things that we know of that have come as spinoffs on this because we want to kind of, you know, keep it close to an hour for you guys, so we're going to kind of have to rush through a couple things here. There is an anime that came out called Samurai 7, which takes the Seven Samurai story, adds giant mechas, and lets giant robots run amok. And yeah, towards the end of it, it adds a new aspect to it that wasn't in the original Seven Samurai. So it starts off very close, and then later on it changes. So if you like giant an- uh, robot animes and you like Samurai 7, that would be something that you want to check out. Uh, Aaron, you were just telling me that there's a Lou Ferrigno Samurai 7? There's a Lou Ferrigno Samurai 7! It is the... Gladiatory, the, the Gladiators Magnificent. Yeah, it's a Lou Ferrigno Samurai 7. Uh, it's called The Seven Magnificent Gladiators is the English translation, I believe, for the title. I'm pretty sure the whole movie's in English because I don't... I'm, maybe Lou Ferrigno speaks more language. I'm ignorant on his capabilities, really. But I it stars Lou Ferrigno. It's a Gladiators. Else. Yep, so there's a Lou Ferrigno movie out there that's based on this. Uh, Pixar's A Bug Life was a version of this. Uh, Guns of Navarone used this as a plot device. Um, there was oh, the, a DuckTales. Uh, the Three Amigos. The Three Amigos was a play on this. Um, Hateful Eight was, you know, a play on Magnificent Seven. Um, there was the A Team. The A Team. The Battle Beyond the Stars, which was came out in like the eighties, was supposed to be Magnificent Seven in space. That's probably one of the bigger knockoff Magnificent Seven slash Seven Samurai films. Yeah. On the list. Um, oh, uh, there's in the comic books, in Marvel Comics, the Star Wars issues 7, 8, 9, and 10 are based on the Seven Samurai. Yep. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, Zack Snyder said that Seven Samurai is going to be a huge influence on him when he's doing the new Justice League film. So we'll see what that actually means. And uh, the most important Seven Samurai spinoff Uncle Scrooge McDuck is a member of the Magnificent Seven. Yes, that is clearly the most important one. Uh, oh, dude, that's that's canon. Another one for the Adam Sandler fans out there is Ridiculous Six, which is on Netflix. You, you shut your face. Hey, I'm just giving people all of their options. All right, don't people people don't use that as an option. If people are recommending an Adam Sandler movie to you and it did not come out in the '90s, skip it. They're not your friend. First off, and skip it. All right, all right. So anyway, uh, once again, we are going to be two nerds walking out. Uh, once again, if you guys would like to go on to audibletrial.com slash two nerds, or two nerds walk in, it would be very helpful to us to be able to keep content flowing to you guys. We're not, you know, again, we're not going to try and show you something that we don't think is a good product. I, like I said, I use Audible every day, um, which is why I said, 
I decided that we could agree to to work with them. Again, we have the Tuners Walk Into a Dungeon coming up. That'll be coming out in the third week of October. Uh, so look for some more information on that coming out on the website. Again, you can get at, get to us at at Two Nerds Podcast for Twitter, the Two Nerds Walk In Facebook page, twonerdswalkin.com, or shout out into the ether and maybe we'll respond. I don't know. Yeah, no. Uh, also, if you just, you, they could email us at twonerdswalkin at gmail. Yep. And we, we have that as an option. If to Send us ideas, things that you want to hear people speak of, and we will be there. Yep, and then uh, make sure you get on iTunes and give us reviews or head over to SoundCloud to be able to sign up to be able to listen to us. Um, and then another way that you can support us if you don't want to do the Audible way, if you go to twonerdswalkin.com slash support. We also have a Patreon account set up now if you guys just want to donate money to the show directly and not have to go through the whole rigmarole of dealing with Audible. Um, I think it's um, a great product. but if you Patreon's a fantastic way. Just... And it's awesome. So on Patreon, you can put up a month, a per month or per episode, pay like thing that we will get every time we upload, and it'll go through at the end of the month. You'll be able to see it on your card, whatever. And the more money we get through things like that, the more things we can do to talk about. Maybe get to giveaways at some point. Start just doing more fun things for you guys. Yeah, and and that's kind of what we're trying to do with this. We're not trying to make anything more than what we're putting into it you know we want to break even at the end of the year um but so everything above and beyond was stuff that we're going to try and turn around and give back to you guys uh because you're a big part of why we're doing this otherwise he and i could just sit in the discord chat all day just jabbering at each other but we think that it's important to get some of these things out to you guys just like uh our last episode when we talked about saturday morning cartoons i mean that was a, a listener idea so if you get to us with what you want to hear about we will definitely provide the jabbering. If you have any, uh, in particular, if you can get any Halloween ideas within the next two weeks, we'd love to get something to talk about there. Yep. So, again, this is Randy Boyles. This is Aaron Tymek. And we are two nerds walking out.